Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. I'm also going to be at the Business Rocks Tech, Music, and Investment Summit recording shows live in Manchester, England, April 21st and 22nd, where Steve Wozniak is headlining. More information about the summit is on the show website at buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Troy Norcross. Troy, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think you're doing a bunch of interesting things. And and when we kind of connected, I don't know, a month or so ago, um, I, I was kind of fascinated by kind of all the stuff that you're doing. So maybe before we kind of get into kind of all the stuff that you're working on, let's kind of get to know you a little bit better and kind of maybe cover your background and kind of where you grew up. Okay. Um, well, I'm currently calling from London in, in the UK, but I was born on 4,000 acres of farmland with 1,000 head of beef cattle in the middle of Missouri, okay. uh, just outside of Kansas City, Missouri. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a long way from home in, in many ways. Uh, but in order to get from, from 4,000 acres of farmland to London, uh, there was one major thing that happened when I was about 12 years old. And I was telling you the story before. Um, I had lots and lots of allergies. So I lived in the farm, but I had a runny nose, I had watery eyes, I was breaking out in hives. It was pretty miserable. And my mom took me to the local university and I walked into this computer room. There was a raised floor and it was bright lights, but it was clean air. And I knew that clean air was my ticket off the farm because my allergies weren't going to be affected. So from age 12, computers were going to be my thing. And that to University of Missouri at Rolla, where I got a degree in computer science. And okay. my first job was working as a co-op student for McDonnell Douglas, riding flight simulators for military aircraft. So how, how is that? that? That sounds like really fascinating to me, actually. Um, so that was one of those crazy things that I actually got the invitation to go to work for McDonnell Douglas. My first job was working in their computer graphics for CAD CAM and design. I love computer graphics. Um, I then moved on to a different kind of computer graphics and went to flight simulation and okay. started working with graphics computers now called SGI, which at that point in time were really kind of very far, very far out there, but it was in the world of video games. So okay. at home, people were playing kind of Atari and I was playing in 30 foot computer simulation domes doing flight simulators. So uh, when I came I didn't want to play the video games anymore because I was doing the world's biggest video game. <laughs> and so I'm curious then, how did you kind of, or like, like, like I've sat in those things before, right? And you're right. Like it's, it has to, it has to ruin playing video games for you because you're basically sitting inside something. You have a screen. Did you have kind of like the full like panel of screens or, or like, how did it, what did it kind of look like? So that this was back in 1987 and 1988, and we had the very first touch screens, and we were using projectors and rear projecting onto the touch screen. And so rather than having the full cockpit, I was responsible for writing the virtual cockpit. So I had the okay. virtual heads up display, I had the virtual altimeter, I had the virtual knobs and buttons and switches, and you used to drag your finger up and down and pull the buttons in and out, and then the computer graphics would change the representation, show that the, the button had been switched. 
That's very cool. That I'm I'm jealous. I'm I'm do you still have like screenshots or anything of that stuff? Or photos? I, I have an old, I have an old uh piece of cardboard showing, you know, my particular program. Cause this was one of those things that was called the virtual cockpit, because one minute it was an ABAB. Right. And then it was four, and then it was an F fifteen, and each one had a different cockpit. And so I, I still have some of the screenshots from that. That's that's really cool. So what happened or what did you end up doing once you kind of left that company? So the computers that I was programming on were Silicon Graphics computers and I went to work for Silicon Graphics. Okay. So, so how I, did you kind of make that transition? Did they reach out to you? Did you reach out to them? I reached out to them. They were coming and doing training sessions and okay. I liked the company and I liked people so much. And I went to work for them as a pre-sales engineer in Dayton, Ohio. And I did that for two and a half years. And then I became a salesperson and I started selling computer systems at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And I used to sell computer systems for MSGI to the government for satellite image processing. Okay, interesting. That, <laughs> that's, that's quite an interesting in job. So how did you kind of, what was your kind of day-to-day, -day, I guess, look like? So day in and day out, you know, when I was doing pre-sales engineering, I was lugging around 200 pound computer systems in the back of a Saab that was the, the, the car of my sales guy. And we'd drive okay. all around Indiana, Ohio and Pennsylvania and do demonstrations of these high-end 3D graphics computer systems. And so okay, that was so kind of my, my day job. So you basically had to like, look, like I'm sure it was a pretty big computer and you had to like haul it together, set it up. It probably took what, half hour, 45 minutes to maybe set up? between like loading and unloading and setting up? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we actually had hospital kind of journeys that we used to bolt these computer systems to and then throw them into the back of the cars and move them in and out and around. And they used to break because the, the cars would bounce along and the boards would come unseated. So you had to take the computer apart and reseat the boards back in to make sure that everything would boot up and run. But in the process of all of that, I got really good at Unix and Unix systems administration. Okay, interesting. Um, and being in the Midwest, there were very few people that understood Linux or Unix or anything of that sort. And I was the Unix guy. So anybody had any problems, they would call that Unix guy. And so I actually got the domain name unixguy.net. Interesting. <laughs> okay. So I'm kind of curious then how, like, okay, so you did that for a while. And then, and then kind of what did you end up doing after that? So I did Unix Systems Administration. I worked for a local Indiana telco for a while. I made the jump to Silicon Valley um, basically a month before the bubble burst. So I okay. went out there April and the bubble burst in May. And I was kind of watching all of Silicon Valley going to meltdown in May of 2000. And I said, okay, do I go back to the Midwest or do I kind of stick it out? I'm out here in the Valley, let's find something to do. And I joined Open Wave Systems at that point in time, and that was in October of 2000. Okay. And that was when I made the jump into telecoms. And this is selling to people like AT&T, like Sprint, but doing it on a global basis. And I was a global solutions architect, and I led a team of other eight architects you know, around the world, Hong Kong, Europe, Canada, North America. And that was a, that was a good ride. I made the jump to living in Amsterdam while I was working for them. So. Two weeks after 9-11, I was one of the first people to take an international flight 
and that was because I was moving from San Francisco to Amsterdam. Oh wow, interesting. <laughs> did you? So that was my big shift into telecoms. Okay, so how long did you kind of do that for? So I did working for OpenWay for five years. Uh, I then moved to London in 2004 to set up a little business doing SMS campaign permission management, trying to prevent consumers from having too much SMS spam. Okay. In 2007, I went to work for Nokia, so the mobile device manufacturer, the handset manufacturer. I worked for them for five years. Okay. Um, and during that time, the last project I did was launch a service in India, uh, working with a software company I think you know called Intuit, makers of, of QuickBooks. <laughs> they actually have an office in the city I live, so yeah, I've heard of it. <laughs> so, so, so that's uh, that's kind of how I've been bouncing around. And I left them in 2012. Okay. As no was on the on the decline, and I've been doing freelance. You know, digital strategy and innovation work and working with startups uh, for the last four years. Sure. No, that's awesome. Um, maybe we'll kind of cover that in, in, uh, in a bit. But I'm curious to know about the conference that you're putting on. Uh, so the conference is really, really interesting. It's called Metamorphosis, A Balanced Future for Media. Okay. What's the web address for people that want to check that out? Sure. It's www.metamorphosis-conference.com. And if you don't put the dash in there, you want it in a, a women's conference in Houston. So it's definitely metamorphosis-conference.com. Okay. So, so what's that about? The premise that we believe is that what Napster did to digital music, the rise in the use of ad blockers is going to do to digital media. And by that, we mean it's going to completely disrupt the industry. For sure. And in sure. addition to that, in the EU, there are all kinds of new privacy regulations that are coming down, that come into force in 2018, that'll make it even harder for advertisers to build profiles on consumers to serve them good quality and targeted advertising. So between privacy regulation and ad blocking, the industry is ripe for disruption. And we want to bring together advertisers, publishers, and consumer privacy specialists to really look at how can we disrupt the industry in our own way rather than being disrupted by somebody else. No, that makes a lot of sense. So when, when is the conference? Where is the conference? And, and kind of how much does it cost me to go? So the conference is going to be on the 14th of April. It's going to be in London near Old Street at a place called The Trampery from 1230 until 6 in the evening. The headline price is 195 uh, that's in pounds. Early bird price is But for listeners of the show, if you use the special promo code VIP invite, you can get 30% off and get the ticket for 125 pounds. Okay, very cool. So I'm kind of curious, what made you kind of decide to start the conference? So I've been working with consumer data and privacy back to when I first got to the UK in 2004 when I was doing pocket reach solutions and a product called Pocket Choice. Okay. And I've always believed that we can help businesses to build trust with consumers by increasing the transparency. If businesses are more transparent about what data they're collecting and how it's being used, consumers will trust them more and value exchanges is easier and better done. So I've been doing that since 2004. In 2012, the EU came up with the cookie law, and I started working on the cookie law and helping me and people be in compliance with that. And ad blocking has been running around for two or three years, but kind of low and under the radar because not very 
many people knew about it until October when Apple allowed content blockers, which were implemented as ad blockers for Safari. And suddenly the internet blew up, the consumers blew up and everybody started taking notice about it. And I said, now is the time, we've got everybody's attention, let's start looking for solutions. And that's why I decided to do the conference now. Okay, no, that makes a lot of sense. So you kind of brought up um, about kind of what you do and you kind of work for startups and whatnot. And I know there's a lot of kind of stuff that are, is kind of going around right now, but I'm, I'm kind of curious to know your thoughts on kind of creating kind of compelling value propositions for, for companies and, and whatnot. And I think a lot of companies kind of struggle with that. And you seem to have a really good grasp and, you know, you're obviously helping tons of people do that right now. So I'm kind of uh, curious to know your take on that and kind of advice for people listening. So I always say that my grandparents gave me many gifts, but the most important gift my grandparents gave me was the ability to tell a story. Okay. And really, all of the value proposition work that I do with startups is around storytelling. You want to take your business and put it into two or three sentences that anybody, including your grandmother, can understand and make it fun and engaging enough that it's a story that they want to tell and that they want to share. You want to build virality into the story. And what I find is I work with some really smart people, some really great startups, really interesting. But at the end of the day, they've been working on them for so long and they're so deep in the weeds and they're buried in acronyms. And they're buried in statistics and all of this data. They're no longer able to communicate really simply and really easily exactly what is the problem they're solving. Exactly why is it interesting and why would somebody pay for it? And that's what I help people do. And one of the first things that I do is I, I start off by saying, who are you talking to? And they're not quite sure what I mean. And I'm coming from the perspective that your story is not the same if you're talking to an investor as it is if you're talking to a customer or even as it is if you're talking to your own teams internally. So first I help them define who's the audience. The second thing we do is we look at exactly what do they think now and what are they doing now? And at the end of a five minute conversation, what do you want them to think and what do you want them to do? And so it may be as simple as I want them to think that it's a really cool product and for do, I want them to tell their friends about it. Or it could be, I want them to think I'm a trustworthy guy and the do is you should invest in me. But if you start off by knowing the audience, and you start off by knowing what's the output, what's the outcome that you're looking for, the chances of you doing things in the middle are, are much greater. And so those are the kind of the fundamentals that I start off working with people. Okay. No, that, ma that makes a lot of sense because uh, you're right. I think a lot of people, my, and my, I would put myself in this boat, is you are so – it's hard to talk to non-technical people when you're a technical person. And sometimes it's – you almost like – I find even with myself that – you, you need to try to gauge, when you're explaining something to somebody, you need to try to gauge their technical level almost as close to instantly as possible. Because you don't want to talk over their head, you don't want to talk down at them, and you also don't want to kind of, you know, insult them by, by treating them like they, they don't know what you're talking about. And that's a real, real struggle. And the fact that you're kind of helping people do that, I think is super important because like people struggle with that heavily. And so I'm kind of curious to know like the approach around that. Like, do you guys really help people write kind of the content or the, the messaging or, 
or how do you kind of go about getting that simple form of thing? Like, do you get them to give you like a demo and then you guys kind of go back and say, here's what I think you do and then kind of revise it from there? Yeah, well, so if, if you go to startupbusinessreview.co.uk, the first thing we ask for is for you to send us our pitch deck. So you send me your, your 10 to 15 slide pitch deck. And from that, I do a quick assessment to say, do I have any idea what this product is, what it does, and why I should invest in it? Yes or no. After that, I'll do a one-hour Skype call with people. And I'll do that initial call for free just so they get a feel for who I am. And I get a feel for who they are and how we would work together. Sure. But I say, okay, tell me. Tell me in you know, however many minutes and however many words you need what it is that you do. And I make a few notes. And then I go back and start asking questions. And sometimes I'll ask the most inane, stupid question that I probably know the answer to. But I do it in a way that makes them stop and think, ooh, I hadn't thought about it that way. Or, oh, I hadn't thought maybe it could be interpreted. Or, ooh, I forgot to mention this and this and this and this and this. So rather than coming up with the, okay, ta-da, here's the answer, I try to lead them down the process of understanding what the audience is thinking or understanding the, the questions that the audience might have that maybe they aren't saying. And when you were saying a minute ago, it was really good. You know, you're paying attention really closely to your audience to see, am I talking them over them, under them, or just about right? But you're reading their body language and you're listening to them. And that's a, the, the number one thing people fail to do. They're so wrapped up and they're so excited and they're so energized about, let me tell you my story. They forget to pay attention to the audience and engage with the audience and listen. So those are a couple of things that I try to do when I work with people. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm kind of curious to know about um, when we talked before that you kind of also help corporations and big enterprise that are struggling to kind of in, innovate internally. And I know that some of the listeners that listen to the show, you know, work at these kind of corporations and, and kind of they see so many cool things that they could be doing. But, you know, for some reason or, or other you know, management doesn't understand or want to or know how or, and I'm sure you deal with that all the time. Do you kind of have any tips or, or advice that you kind of give people and how to kind of start innovating in kind of these big companies or corporations? Yeah, and, and it's absolutely a huge challenge. So there are a couple of things that are happening. Um, number one, the word innovation is getting to the boardroom. Okay. That means that the board of directors of these larger companies are beginning to realize that innovation is important. Now, the problem is many of them don't have any idea what innovation actually means, but they know innovation is important. So they go to the CEO and they say, thou shalt innovate. And so the CEO puts together a program of innovation. Um, but the problem that they usually run into is they didn't get the rest of the company to come along on the journey. And they have no idea what success looks like at the beginning. All they know is they should do something that looks like innovation. So they hire an innovation manager. They do a little innovation theater. And two years later, the CFO walks around the corner with a spreadsheet and a big red number and said, you spent how much and you've done what? And so when I try to talk to these companies, I say organizational readiness and a commitment to actual innovation involving working directly with customers to identify their challenges and their needs that you might satisfy and allowing for the fact that you might build something that doesn't work 
and allowing for something you might build that doesn't work with your business but could be sold off and getting the organization ready for these things is, is the first step. So if you're in an organization and you see opportunities for innovation and opportunities for failure, the best thing I can tell you is to make note of them, write them down, and start doing incredibly small little tests directly with consumers. Just try something. Try it in uh, on a web page. Try it in a phone call. Try it down at the pub. You know, go down and have a conversation with somebody and get a little bit of data and say, wow, if I do this, it grows our business. If I do this, it gives us a new product line. If I do this, it might give us a new way to make money that we hadn't seen before. And then you're bringing not just an idea that you had kind of scribbled on a napkin, but you're bringing an idea that you went out and talked to people and you validated it with real customers. Because that's where the heart of innovation happens is in a conversation between you, your company, and your customer. Sure, no, I, I think that's really good advice. And like over the years in my career, I've worked with kind of a handful of big corporations and whatnot. And it, it seems like majority of people in the company want to do innovative stuff and they want to try new things. It's just if, if management doesn't support it, they, they almost feel like their hands are tied and a lot of times they end up leaving these companies, right? And with the whole startup space and it, 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 like, I don't mean it to be in a negative context, but being in a startup or having a startup is kind of trendy right now. And I, I think it's awesome. Like, I don't want it to come across like I'm trying to be negative. I Like, I think it's awesome. And I think what's going to end up happening if these corporations don't innovate internally, people are just going to leave and do innovation in that space and maybe become a competitor because they see these holes in the market and they're like, well, I could just build a piece of software that would fix, you know, a handful of issues. And well, I already know the industry because I've been working in it for a number of years. Do you find that as well? Um, absolutely. So you, you talked on two different points there that I want to pick up on. Okay. Uh, I worked for innovation for a large multinational pharmaceutical company. Okay. And every time we came up with a bunch of new ideas, I always knew I was very close to making something really impactful and really interesting when they would bring out what I called the three knives. Okay. And the three knives are called legal, regulatory, and compliance. Because if you started doing anything that was interesting, the legal people would come down and say, oh my gosh, the risk of that is horrific. You can't do that. And regulatory would come around and say, oh my gosh, the FDA will come down on us like a ton of bricks if you do that. And compliance will come along and say, oh, my gosh, the shareholders will be horrified if we actually did that. So I knew I was actually making real progress if they brought out the knives. Interesting. You're finding that more and more people inside the organization want to try different things, but the organization is inherently risk averse. The organization doesn't want to embrace risk or do risky things. The organization wants to do the same thing more efficiently. And that's the difference between innovation where there's risk and process improvement, which just makes the existing machine kind of go faster. Now, the part about startups, you're right. The best and the brightest are going to abandon the shackles of the big corporates, and they're going to go off and do some things in startup land, but they've got more flexibility, more opportunity, and they can do really fun things, and they can make a huge difference. What we find here in the UK is, and I think probably in the US as well, Sure. 
companies are starting to partner with startups. Well, I think they so, kind of have to. Well, they do, but this is where they're actually kind of bridging the gap, is they're finding startups to do pilots with, or to partner with, or to invest in, because the startups can be lean and nimble, and they can do fun things, and they can try different things that the, that the big corporates just can't. Sure, sure. And so by doing that, they actually build a better environment internally. The organization starts to change and, quote, unquote, gets infected with the startup thinking and the startup ideology and the startup mentality. And the whole organization improves. And some startups get to come along and get great customers or get great investment from these big corporates. So there's really great synergy happening between big corporates and startups. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I wish I remember who told me this, but they were working at a big company and they had this poster printed out and they put it on the wall in their office and it said, look out, Silicon Valley's coming just to always remind um, them that basically like they need to keep innovating. And they were a large company. I, I wish I remember who they were. And I thought that was like brilliant because it it makes a lot of sense, right? Like, there's so many industries that young people are just like, I don't really care. I'm just going to build this thing and I'm going to see what happens. And if it takes down these kind of giant corporations, they don't really care. Right. I, I, and like, I think it, it just got me really kind of thinking about that. And I thought, you know, it makes a lot of sense because I know there's a lot of guys doing like banks where there is no like brick and mortar bank anymore. You just do everything online. And and there, you know, it's starting to happen in kind of like the insurance industry and a bunch of other kind of old school industries that where they don't even need these brick and mortar stores. And most people, you could just handle most of the stuff like almost online or through an app or, or kind of a combination of both. And like, I, I don't know about you, but personally, I don't even really like to call like even my cell phone provider, right? Like I rather sometimes I just chat with them on online right or i just exactly. look online and do this stuff like i don't really go to a store anymore to buy a phone i just order one from google and it shows up in a week yeah um bill gates i think was the one who made the quote that banks are not necessary but banking is so that's that perfect kind of really really sums up this transformation that's happening in the way that we engage with financial services which includes insurance as much as it does with banking and what amazon is doing with one hour delivery Yep. You know, so so there's no more a need to go anywhere. You can order it from Amazon through your Amazon Echo and it shows up in an hour on your door. Or there's a way that you can actually tweet the pizza emoticon to Domino's. And if you're registered with Domino's, your pizza will show up just because you sent a tweet. So there are all these new ways of engaging with these services. And it's good for companies because it's automated. Um, it's not always perfect because sometimes you really need the human touch. Sometimes you need to speak to a human being. And in that space, you're talking about doing chat. Yeah. And chat is better than telephone totally. um, in, in a lot of ways until you start realizing that in the next two to three years, artificial intelligence will be who you're chatting with and you won't know it. Totally, which is mind blowing, but but I I kind of love that idea. <laughs> yeah, but it'll it'll handle the first you know twenty thirty percent of the conversation, and once it's assessed what the real issue is, if it needs to get a human being to continue and take over the chat, then it will transfer you to the next person in the supervisor list, yeah. which will actually be a real person. But if yeah. you know if, if it solves my problem, 
fantastic. Totally. I, I know, like, the one thing that I've really realized lately, like, I'm an Android user. I have an iPhone and whatnot, too, but I, I prefer Android over iOS. And Google has been traditionally awful at support, but the last, like, six months, maybe even a year, like, in most of their apps, and you can, there's, like, a support, and it'll tell you, like, okay, emails, if you send us an email, we'll answer you within, like, two to four hours. There's, there's like, a call me button, and it tells you how long It'll take for them to call you. So you don't even have to like sit on hold anymore. I just hit like call me and literally I just like look at my phone and like 10 seconds later the phone rings. Like it's getting to the point where everything's just becoming so on demand, even customer support where I think in a few years the days of just kind of even calling a number, it's just like I'm just going to hit a button on my phone and they're going to call me when, you know, they have a free time, whether it's instantly or in 20 minutes or, or whatever, right? It's like, and maybe we're just getting a bit lazy, but I, I think like corporations need to start to think about this stuff, right? But go, to the, go to the next level, go to the next level. The next level says, you're not gonna press any button at all. You're gonna yeah. wave your hand and your VR headset is going to you know, knock on the door and a virtual assistant is gonna walk into your virtual reality home. Totally to give you virtual reality assistance with whatever problem you're having, whether it's Microsoft HoloLens or whether it's, you know, Facebook's, you know, VR or the new Samsung VR or the one from Vive from HTC. I mean, virtual reality, I just got back from Barcelona at Mobile World Congress and virtual reality was huge. Internet of Things was huge. Sure, and neither sure. one of those are inherently mobile, but they're the two big things that were really big at the conference. Yeah, no, that's that's totally true. I know, like, I've, I've had a couple people on the show already that are kind of in the VR space, and, and you're right, like, we have an Oculus here, and I've played with it a bunch, and it's it's interesting, and the HoloLens to me is, is actually probably the most fascinating, just because, like you just mentioned, like, if, if you're literally having problems, and you can, like, put on these glasses, and somebody walks you through your problem, like, live, virtually, in your living room, that's very cool. So one of, one of the other businesses that I'm doing is called See and Fix It. Okay. And the strap line is called We See It, You Fix It. Okay. And we do, during a live Skype video call, basic home repairs. Okay, so interesting. if your dishwasher won't drain, point your phone at the dishwasher. We'll look at the model. We'll look at the PDF guide, and we'll tell you what buttons to press to get your dishwasher to drain. And then we'll, we'll save you the call-out fee because we're able to do it and able to see it. And I did this the very first time with my dad, who had somehow knocked a cable loose on his stereo and it wasn't working. He's in the middle of Missouri and I'm in London. I'm like, well, point your phone at the back of the stereo. And let me tell you which cable to reconnect. Sure. And I fixed it for him. That's awesome. You know, so this whole video self-help thing is, is live and it's real. And doing that with HoloLens is kind of taking, again, that to the next level. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's it's actually the whole space. I think we're at like the very early stages. And like, I know I've read articles and stuff where they basically say we're at the very, very beginning of like the whole tech revolution. Yeah, which is really frightening. But, I, but absolutely, I agree. Yeah, it is really frightening. And the other thing, and it sounds kind of stupid to say, but it, it bugs me that like, I will not be able to play with the stuff that gets invented long after I'm dead. <laughs> like, I'm just so fascinated by that whole thing, right? Like, I love my tech gadgets and the whole technology thing. And it's just, it's interesting where 
kind of things are going. And I, I think kind of just to kind of get back to what we were talking about with corporations, like they almost need to be thinking about this stuff and maybe even starting their own kind of incubators internally just to to keep their top people and keep their top people interested and kind of basically so they don't become irrelevant. Do you think, do you, do you find that? I, I, I do. I agree with that. And I'll caveat it. I'll, I'll add to it. Sure. And, and I'll say you need to have an internal incubator with an external lens because okay. too many people are just looking internally. And if you're only looking internally and you're only looking at one another and the stuff that you already know, you're never going to find the, the other bits. I mean, the fact that I was in farming and I was in flight simulation and I was in computer graphics and I was in telecoms and I've been in digital music and I've been in pharma, all of those things are completely disparate, but I pulled different experiences from each of those things to find new solutions for wherever, wherever I am. And so big companies need to have that kind of variety of exposure by looking out, even in places they might not think to look, to find things and then bringing them in to work with the team. But you can't have just purely internally focused. No, that, that's really good advice. And I, I think you brought up an interesting point there is I, I hear this a lot of times from startups where they're like, well, I only know this one space or like I've had all this experience in all these different industries. It's like, well, you can, in a lot of industries, at the if you take the core things that you learn, you can apply them to any industry. And I, I think... I really like the fact that you kind of take things from your past experience in other industries to use them to solve problems in your current, whatever you're currently doing. Yeah, and this is something Seth Godin talks about. He talks about learning as rote memorization versus learning and problem solving. And and they're they're very different. And I hope that there's an evolution or a revolution really in education at least in my lifetime, that we get away from just rote memorization of stuff and really start focusing in on problem solving. One of the things that I talk about in the UK and in the EU from the venture capital perspective is there's a real conservative nature around here and they don't like failure. I always say in Silicon Valley, if you haven't been bankrupt twice, then you're not serious enough to be invested in and you haven't failed on somebody else's dime. Over here... If you failed once, you know, then that's that's one time too many. Yeah, and interesting. When you've got a 4.0 grade point average, the only way you get to a 4.0 is you get straight A's across the board and you never make an A minus and you never make a B. Well, right, that means right. you are going to take the least risky approach to every decision throughout your entire education. Because one screw up might give you that B and then you're screwed. But also, that one screw-up might teach you something more than all the A's are ever going to get you. Totally. You're, you're right. And there's, I, I think you bring up a really interesting point there. I think majority of successful people will, or maybe not, they might not tell you over on air, or they might tell you just in private, but chances are they have failed more than two times. It's usually like a handful of times, a dozen times. And sometimes they've pivoted a bunch of times and sometimes it takes them 10 plus years to finally hit something successful. And, you know, they might have pivoted a handful of times, right? And I think just being part of a startup, in some cases, if you really look at it, you might fail a few times every day. Yeah, there might be small failures, but, you know, there's, I'm kind of tired of the, that attitude of like, 
people just think that they're going to start a startup and be like a billionaire in like a weekend, right? Like go play yeah. the Powerball or whatever other lottery you want, right? It's it's a lot of hard work and I, I think, you know, I'm trying to just with the show inspire people to, to actually like go for it, right? And that reach out and have a network of people that can support you when you do kind of fall down and it's just like the people that pick themselves up from that and are, are eventually just successful. You pick yourself up, you learn from whatever it was that caused you to fall totally. and, and, carry, and you carry on. Um, the, the latest VC term today is rabbits. Are you aware of the rabbit term? I have not heard this, but do explain, I'm interested. So, so unicorns are billion-dollar valuation companies. Okay. And decacorns are $10 billion valuation companies. Okay. And unicorns and decacorns are no longer in favor. VCs are looking for rabbits. Rabbits are real, actual businesses building interesting tech. Interesting. And so they're looking for businesses that have a real revenue model, that actually are making money, that actually have customers, that are actually solving a problem. As opposed to some of these co businesses that are, you know, oh, I've got 10 billion users and I've got 20 billion users, they've got 100 billion users, and I'll figure out how to make money later. Or I've been running in the red every year, but I'm growing. Um, I think that those businesses are, are not as much in favor as the smaller businesses that are going to do 10, 20, 50 million in revenue, but they're real solid businesses. Sure. I, I, I know I was kind of thinking it was kind of about time that, Silicon Valley would start kind of looking at businesses that are actually businesses. It's it's always kind of weird, and I you know like I try to cover the the sh or people on the show that are actually have kind of a revenue model, right? I think the days are are, are gone or almost gone where you basically build something and you just hope that you sell to kind of one of the big three, which is like Facebook, Google, or or Twitter. And I'm sure there's a handful of others, but you know those days are kind of gone. Do you, do you agree with that? I, I think they are. And I think also Silicon Valley is still very popular and there are lots of resources there, lots of people with lots of money. But there's also Boston mm -hmm. and, there's, uh, and there is Houston, you know, and, and you're finding other centers yep. where there are, are good investment, there are good resources, there are good costs of living and good quality of life. And so it's not exclusively the Silicon Valley thing anymore. And no, that's totally. Part of the shift. Yeah, the shift away from moonshots and just building really good, solid businesses that make a positive impact on the world and put some money in the pocket too. No, totally makes sense. And like, I was just down in Florida actually, and um, a bunch of people that made a bunch of money, kind of in the Northeast, have moved kind of down to sunny Florida. Why not? Um, and uh, started almost like venture firms down there, and they said. Like it's still kind of early in some of these places, but they're you know they're funding companies, they're doing well. There's a lot of money in there. I know like Atlanta, the city's pumped in a lot of money into the startup space, and and other cities like you mentioned across across the states. I know like Oregon um, and kind of uh, Portland and even like Seattle are, are kind of getting a lot of funding as well, and and people are moving to these places because. The cost of living is so much lower and quality of life's better and well I shouldn't say better but to some people it's better and um, you know so you're right and a lot of people can't move to Silicon Valley don't want to move to Silicon Valley for a number of reasons 
And and in some cases, you don't really need to anymore to be successful in in a good popular startup that's doing really well. Yeah, but to to your point, you know, some people are still wanting to play the Powerball, and 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 become the next Zuckerberg. And if that's your focus, then you're going to have to put everything on you know on twenty three red, move to the valley, and and do everything that you want to do. Totally. Other people simply want to have a hundred million dollar business, which is nothing to sneeze at. And you can build several of those at various places across the U.S. and at various places across across Europe as well. Sure. So I think it's about getting getting right size in your expectations, um, and then building the right team and the right business idea around it. Yeah. No, I I hundred percent agree with you. But Troy, we're kind of running out of time, so maybe let's close the show with kind of promoting where people can find you online, the conference online again. And any other social media links you want to promote? Well, I really, really appreciate this. It's been a really, really great, uh, engaging conversation. And I, I look forward to doing it again with you. Yeah, I would um, love to have you again. So the, the Twitter handle is at Troy underscore Norcross. Uh, you can find about.me forward slash Troy dot Norcross, which has links to my LinkedIn, my Facebook, and my Twitter all in one place. If you're a startup and you want to have me give you a quick review on your pitch, Check out startupbusinessreview.co.uk. And if you'd like to attend the Metamorphosis Conference in London, don't forget the discount code VIP invite, and it's metamorphosis-conference.com. Really appreciate all those plugs. Awesome. Well, Troy, thanks again for, for doing this. I, I do think we should put to kind of put together another show at some point. You know, you're you're doing a bunch of things. We could probably put together a number of shows to cover everything and talk about a bunch of things, but Again, I really appreciate you doing this. I look forward to kind of staying in touch with you and uh, who knows where the future holds, you know? I've got one more thing I want to, want to say, just kind of a wrap-up. Sure, up. sure. You know that story about me when I was 12 years old? Okay. And I went to the local university. I walked away with a Snoopy calendar that was made on a dot matrix printer from a program that was submitted into the machine with punch cards. And that was back, you know, back in 1977. Sure. And now we're talking about HoloLens, virtual reality. I mean, just the changes that have come along in, in my lifetime in tech are amazing. And I'm a bit jealous like you that there'll be another whole generation of, of tech that I may not get to play with. But I had a wild ride so far and, and look forward to the next, the next round as well. So thanks again. Yeah, man. That's awesome. Um, yeah. All right, man. We'll, we'll talk soon. Take care. Bye. Hey, bye. Thanks for listening to the show. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com. Until next time, keep building the future.